Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Coaston, and joining me today are my special guests, Lachlan Marque and Asawin Subsang of The Daily Beast. And we are going to be talking about their new book, Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. But we're also going to be talking about not the book, because one of the things that you talk in the book, you have a lot of anecdotes of the weirdness of Trump world. But I want to get above that and talk about why writing this book was important in the first place. And so I actually want to start by there's a moment very early in the book in which you are detailing the story of a man named Walter Brockington, who sued Trump ineffectually, um, because he believed that Trump had stolen his idea from Monopoly-esque board game that was called Trump the Game. And so there's this line, it's, it's a throwaway line where you're quoting him as saying during the 2016 GOP presidential primary that Trump is a character. And he probably means that in the like, he's such a character kind of way. But it's interesting because throughout the book, there's this idea that there's the idea of Trump. There's Trump the amalgamation of what Hollywood means. There's Trump, the guy who yells at people all the time. There's Trump, the weird person who spins around in his chair. When you were working on this book, did you ever get an idea of who you think Donald Trump, now president of the United States, actually is? And how much of this is the development of a character? Well, the funny thing is that during uh, 2015 and the 2016 Republican primary, it wasn't enough that the game show host comes out and suddenly rockets to the top of uh, the polls for the Republican primary. He had to basically be all things to all people, which led to him being this uh, gargantuan, larger than life, rather horrifying, uh, in my opinion, figure on the right, where he couldn't just be the apprentice reality TV guy. He had to be the accused serial sexual assaulter. He had to be the guy saying that, oh, maybe we'll uh, bring about this massive Muslim registry and we have to ban all the Muslims and the Mexicans are rapists and j- j- just just everything spilling right. forth. And uh, the little glimpse into his past that uh, you just referenced there was something where this poor schmuck Walter Brockington III was one of the many people who were sort of littered in the graveyard of Donald Trump-related legal action, whether right. initiated by Trump or someone against Trump. And he was just someone who just insisted that Donald Trump must have stolen my board game. And this was for, as you mentioned, Trump the game, another ill-fated Trump property that just went nowhere and just did not sell well, along with like Trump-branded water and Trump-branded steaks. 
one of the things that really I think that this book in some ways is a stunning indictment of a lot of things, but also a stunning indictment of cable news. And I've been thinking a lot about how much ESPN and the sportsification of how we think about politics has influenced cable news. But two, how much the cable news relationship in view of Trump is so separate from what everyday people think about Trump. And so you get into this with um, the hosts of Morning Joe. I want to read this quote because I think it's fantastic. Um, Trump's relationship with Joe and Micah and his larger relationship with the pundit press is akin to a really bad marriage. Each party despises the other, constantly hurls insults, threatens, demeans, berates, and promises that, God damn it, this is the last time I swear I'm going to leave you. But neither of them leaves because when it comes down to it, they're in love and they need each other. Trump needs the media to hang on as every word, and that if that means they put on an air of outrage and derision, well, that's better than being ignored. And the punditocracy needs Trump and his endless stream of slights and outrages. They provide unending fodder for mindless and banal panel discussions, inevitably stacked with Republican strategists and Democratic strategists, titles seemingly devised purely for cable news chirons with which to banner these reliably unenlightening television shoutfests. Yeah, I, I was so interested in that because there's Donald Trump, the actual human being. There is Donald Trump, the president of the United States, and then there's Donald Trump, the creation and the blank slate in some ways upon which cable news, whether it's Fox News or CNN or MMC, has projected their greatest fears and greatest hopes onto this one person. Yeah, I mean, and and it goes back to your previous question, which is sort of who is Donald Trump? And obviously, ego is wrapped up with his identity and his appeal but uh, he largely defines himself in politics and and I think did in business and in media and entertainment as well in opposition. Um, and a lot of his identity uh, is derived from the people that he is opposing. And as a matter of fact, that colors a lot of his political support and supporters as well is opposition to some perceived enemy. So right. the media or the globalists or the immigrants or uh, the Democrats or whoever it is. That happens to be the precise – I mean opposition is sort of the bread and butter of political media or political punditry. It's sort of where the – you know, this this sort of manufactured conflict is why cable news exists or it seems to have – it seems to be sort of the business model that they've settled on. Um, and that's why the president – I don't even think he understands just how well he understands media. And, you know, I think he just sort of subconsciously – operates on the same same wavelength, this idea of sort of baked in opposition and antagonism and us versus them sort of mentality. I mean, that is fundamentally the character of modern political media. Um, and he just just instinctively understands that and feeds that. Um, and that sort of feedback loop is um, one of the most potent uh, forces behind his political rise, I think. Right. And for as much as he loves to rail against the fake news, enemy of the people, whatever, and talk about how much bias they have against Republicans and Donald Trump and so on and so forth, he sort of gives away the game when he talks about oftentimes on stage at his uh, political rallies about how much he at the very least instinctively gets the economic incentives for uh, newspapers and TV shows uh, coverage of the news. 
that has nothing to do with anti-Trump or ideological bias or anything like that. He he will say all the time about how, oh, when I'm gone, the New York Times, even though they might not like me, are really going to miss me because the readership is going to go down. Uh, cable news ratings for MSNBC and CNN are going to go down. So he understands, even if it's on a purely instinctive level, that so much of the bias that I think so many people wrongly attribute to ideological or partisan bias in political media is actually driven by economic incentives right? and what and, sells, just like any other major industry. Or and business. I think that that's something that you, you talk about very quickly in the introduction of this book. And it's something you've talked about in other interviews. And I think we've spoken about it. But I think that there is an idea that like you do not get to write this book if Hillary Clinton is president. There is a different version of this book that exists, and it probably looks more like Team of Rivals, or it kind of looks more like one of the staid books that's like, here are all these extremely well-informed people right. who will make well-informed decisions that will probably still get a lot of people killed, but it'll be different, and yeah, everyone no. will have gone to college. But I think that there is an idea that in some way, this administration has been a boon to media or to writers, even though you are writing about things that you did not think you would ever write about or want to write about, that this is in some way beneficial to you as economic entities in our capitalist system. And it's something that I think about a lot because in some ways, as some, you know, my focus is on the GOP conservatism, the far right and white nationalism. And about like three of those things would be dramatically different in how I covered them or the interest in how I cover them were Hillary Clinton president or had Trump not re not gotten the nomination. There's a version of this world in which Marco Rubio is president and we're having like knockdown drag fights about expanding the earned income tax credit. And we don't have this populist movement. We don't have hillbilly elegy. We don't have any of this. And the white nationalists who I cover who have existed all this time, people aren't as interested in and I don't get the clicks on my articles. And then it's not as like much of a driving force for the work that I do and other people do. Is that something that you thought about while writing this book? Yes. And, you know, my background and sort of passion is in, in investigative reporting. And I, that's what I did a lot. I, you know, obviously come from the world of conservative media. And so I focused a lot on the Obama administration and did sort of investigative dirt digging type work right. uh, on that uh, on that era in our politics. And, you know, as much as there are and there were at the time some amazing investigative reporters out there, the competition was nowhere near what it is today in terms of trying to find those types of like corruption and money in politics stories. Now, there are more of those stories out there to be had these days. But, um, you know, in this alternate universe where Hillary Clinton wins the election, in my mind, I'm still covering, you know, I might still be at the Washington Free Beacon covering the Hillary administration with an investigative focus. And maybe it's me and Ken Vogel at the New York Times and like Mattia Gold at the Washington Post. And we're one of like just a handful of reporters doing the type of investigative work that is now ubiquitous in the Trump administration. So, yeah, in that's like in one sense, um, Trump has been really good for us professionally. But in another, you know, I would probably be doing roughly the same thing um, and I'd have a lot less like competition. But more like to the to your your actual question, uh, I think it's the reason that there is such a strong first person element in the book is because the simple fact that we are covering this White House, um, like we wouldn't 
I don't think we would have been hired as White House reporters in virtually any other like normal administration. So the fact that we were tasked with this and just sort of told to go, I mean, basically just have fun with it and try to find stories where we could is integral with the like underlying the tacit thesis of the book, which is that just this has changed everything in Washington and everything is now like the Trump show and has been subsumed by his like unique character and idiosyncrasies. I want to go back to something because you you, you know, got your start in conservative media. Yeah. And one fascinating aspect, I differentiate between philosophical conservatism and movement conservatism. Sure. Movement conservatism being the effort to get philosophical conservatism into practice. Yeah. But a lot of what conservatism has looked like historically, movement conservatism, has been that reactionary element. Not reactionary in a negative sense, necessarily, or in a positive sense. Just a conservatism is a reaction to something and an effort to stop what that is. You know, sta William F. Buckley's famous quote, standing athwart history yelling, right. stop. Yeah. So how do you see Trump? You, you mentioned that kind of he is standing in opposition to something and that that is something that his supporters, the supporters who aren't in basically because of specific elements, say abortion policy or yeah. immigration, but that his he is standing in opposition to the same things that they are standing in opposition to. How much do you see that as something that's come from within the world of movement conservatism? I mean, Everyone these days kind of has their own idea of what conservatism is, and I still consider myself a conservative. And what I sort of understand that to be or what what my – what I mean by that when I talk about my own political views is, you know, we're in this very extremely tumultuous time in the world technologically and, and financially and politically and culturally. Um, it's just like I don't think in human history have – such momentous changes been just unfolding as quickly as they are right now. And that could be a very destabilizing force in like every area of public life. And so my – when I say I'm a conservative, I mean my view is the government should be trying to moderate or stabilize all of those different uh, factors that are affected by that rapidly changing you know, world that we live in in order to prevent some sort of extremely like cataclysmic event that could be caused by such rapid changes. So that's like a really dry and long-winded way of sort of explaining where I'm coming from and is the reason that Donald Trump never really appealed to me and I never really considered him a conservative candidate because he, you know, yes, he's, he is probably a reactionary force and he certainly stands very clearly in opposition to identifiable like political trends, um, but he is a destabilizing influence, I think. You know, and I think that's basically anathema to conserving things in an era of such like rapid and destabilizing changes. Swin, you came um, to the Daily Beast from Mother Jones, and you, you've talked about this before, how you are looking at this administration as someone, one, who thinks that um, for all of its many, many, many faults and foibles and evils, that this administration does not yet have the death toll or impact of the George W. Bush administration. And it's interesting because I think that you you get at this point a little bit in some of your interviews that you've done where while the Trump administration is shambolic, that shambolic nature, particularly through 2017 and 2018, 
prevented it from doing the things that Trump often talked about, as did the fact that if you can just if you could distract Trump for a little while, you could get him to, say, not try to kill Bashar al-Assad or not try to do these things. Whereas the George W. Bush administration was very much, we are united on the idea that we should do these things, we should invade Iraq and Afghanistan, and we should run a re-election campaign based entirely on gay marriage. So when you're thinking about this administration, however, for the potentials of this administration, Mm -hmm. if this administration had been run in the way that the second Bush administration had been run, or the first Bush administration, um, depending on your view of the first Iraq war, Do you see more inherent risk from this administration had it not been shambolic? Oh, yeah. No, no, a thousand percent. And um, something that that reminds me of is for the first year or two of the Trump era, uh, something I would routinely say, um, including publicly or during interviews or whatever, that uh, drove some of my liberal friends crazy was that I, I would say, okay, look. Trump can be incredibly annoying and sometimes maybe even destructive with his constant, like, moronic hollering about enemy of the people this and fake news media that. But at least at that very moment in time, circa, say, 2017, he had yet to do anything as damaging for press freedom in this country as what Obama and Eric Holder had done in terms of how they went uh, their war on um, leakers and whistleblowers in their myths that obviously ended up uh, wrapping up a good chunk of the press in a very bad way that they then tried to close the door on. So I always my caveat was, I mean, give Trump time. He just got into office. And uh, the sad thing about uh, prior administrations, in this, in this case, the Obama administration, edging the door open on stuff like that is when more thuggish people come into the office, it gives them the opportunity to cite that as president and then completely blow the hinges off the door on something like that. So at that moment, I was like, yes, this stuff can be annoying, but so much of it is kayfabe and public messaging, like focus on the substance and the actual policies and what Trump's DOJ is doing. Like, just because Trump hurts your feelings and you happen to be in political media, like, don't let that cloud your judgment. And I didn't get as many takers as I thought I would for for this take. And then finally, when uh, the Jeff Sessions DOJ did what it did vis-a-vis Ali Watkins and that whole mess, I was like, okay, that plus everything that Trump and his minions and whoever are saying about uh, trying to delegitimize their enemies in the media – and so on and so forth. Okay, that coupled together, you can make the argument that he is worse than Obama was on this issue. But I didn't get the sense that people were in my uh, that far too many people in my profession weren't agreeing with me on that simply because their feelings were hurt by the big bad man in the Oval Office, Donald J. Trump. Um, so I think that type of perspective. And and look, I'm not saying Obama is worse than Trump or anything like that, but maintaining a healthy perspective on what is actually happening in the realm of policy and actual concrete actions as opposed to just Trump's like uh, dumb as shit messaging is important in terms of actually evaluating where he stands in recent history, if that makes sense. It does. Um, I want to go back because you used a word that I I learned about relatively recently because I came into the understanding of professional wrestling within the last like four months. But it it has been – a stunning educational experience. You use the term kayfabe. 
And that's basically the idea that you have two people in a wrestling competition or more because you can have apparently like 9,000 people in any single one wrestling competition. Mm -hmm. And these two people are positioned against each other and they're supposed to hate each other or love each other or used to have hate each other or used to have loved each other. But all of none of this is real. None of this is you know, this is a work shoot, so to speak, that this is, you know, when you've got someone saying, you know, like, I love Saddam Hussein and this guy's standing up for America. This is, you know, they're playing characters. When you talk about Dan Bongino or Corey Lewandowski or any of the kind of weird hangers on who take part in this administration in some fashion, how much of that, when you had actual interactions with them, and I know I, I've experienced this as well, how much did you get the sense that it's kayfabe, that they want you to write about them and want you to hate them, but then w they'll meet with you and have drinks with you, and they you, you have this realization that this is, this is the, you know, this is a work shoot, that they are trying to do this, that they desperately want the New York Times to write about how terrible they are. Yeah, it, it kind of runs the gamut. Um, and especially in the early, uh, you know, like 2017 era, there was a really broad sort of mix of people in the White House in terms of their professional backgrounds. So like when we started covering the White House together, I knew a lot more of the people who came from like the RNC world and like right. professional Republican politics basically. Swin was much better sourced among people who had been on the campaign because he had covered the campaign. I had not. And those were two very different types of people. Take like a, a, a Sean Spicer, for instance. Um, I think people who had covered Republican politics and dealt with Sean Spicer for years when he was at the RNC and prior to that were real, were the most sort of taken aback by like the character that he put on from the podium. And like Sean is a pretty nice guy and like – I don't know. He, he's I, – I, I consider him this sort of like goofy kind of lovable character who got – just totally like sucked up in this whirlwind of like Trumpian politics and propaganda. So like that's a great example of someone who I don't think was really a true believer. But I mean he was a true believer in the Republican political project. But like when it came to Trump, he you know was very quick to like adopt this persona that people who had known him knew was really not him. And that turns out to have not like suited him very well professionally in the ensuing uh, year or so. But that's not to say there aren't a ton of like actual true believers in in Trump's midst. And I think of folks like Stephen Miller, for instance, um, you know, a guy who was like preaching nationalist politics uh, years before Trump came on the scene um, and, you know, is not going to like he he's not out there because he loves seeing his name in CNN Chirons like bashing him, although I bet he does get a kick out of that. Like he actually has a political project that he's putting into or an ideological project. He's 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 out there to put into practice. Um, and, you know, I think you can find the same on the opposite end of that divide. I think there are folks in media who have found that it's very advantageous for them financially and professionally to be the butt of Trump's ire. Um, and certainly we were hoping we'd get at least a hate tweet for this book. Yeah, come no, on. No man. luck so far. Um, and then there are folks who, you know, who are like really good reporters and who are, you know, who have been like unjustly uh, like targeted by folks in the White House for that. So, um, you know, I, it, it's tough to paint with too broad a brush. I spoke with Tim Carney, who's at AEI uh, for the Ezra Klein show and his book Alienated America. And he made the comparison that sometimes when you're in a relationship with someone – 
they do not want you to necessarily fix the problem. They don't expect you to, but they want you to listen to whatever they're saying. And he made the point that Trump seemed alone in purporting to be listening to what Americans, specifically working class Americans, were saying. And it's interesting how we talk about this as if his victory was this like all consuming entity when he lost the popular vote. Um, And let's also put heavy bunny ears around working class. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's I feel like a lot of times I I know podcasting is a heavily visual medium. But when I say working class, I mean like a very specific type of working class people. When we say working class, we do not think of the service economy, even though that if you've ever had a service economy job, you know, that's working and that's. Sometimes a big lack of class. Right. Also, um, most poor people voted yes. for the Democrat right, in the 2016 exactly. election. <laughs> right. Um, but I am interested to get both of your thoughts coming from different political persuasions on – I keep thinking about how institutional conservatism really didn't know what to do with Trump or with Trumpian populism and have since – I think, in my view, attempt to kind of backfill, being like, oh, what Mm -hmm. you actually were talking about was um, an idea of nationalism or what you were actually talking about was rural poverty. What you were actually talking about was this, because Trump opened the door to being like, I could have been saying this when I said healthcare for everyone. Who knows what I might have meant when I said I was going to be the most pro-LGBT president? I could have meant anything, including restricting the rights of trans people. But I'm interested to hear from both of you. What do you think your respective political side did not listen to that in some ways contributed to people turning to Trump? I mean, the post-war neoliberal consensus of, you know, free trade of, I don't want to say open borders because that overstates it, but like more liberal immigration policies. And like these were things that I, I think their deleterious effect on the working class had been overstated. But I do think that Republicans didn't really appreciate just how thoroughly embedded that idea was that this this project had totally failed. The years and years and my entire time coming up through the conservative movement was like you just can't escape like the 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 illusions and the appeals to Reaganism. Right. And Reaganism was very much like a product of that sort of post-war global order. And people don't really cling to that as much anymore, uh, whether out of a, a tacit or like explicit understanding that that is sort of if if not a cause, at least a. Um, a symptom of like the precise thing that Trump's base was was so upset about. I don't know. I mean, it varies from voter to voter, obviously, but I don't know how much it was an explicit understanding of like this particular trade policy has failed us. Then this consensus status quo is clearly not like intended for me. I am not the target audience of what po- of politicians for the last like three decades. Swin actually recounted a story for me a while ago about basically an anecdote of of someone saying, you know, the, these voters who felt like they had been left behind in that post-war order were looking up on that debate stage with whatever it was, 18 different Republican candidates and just instinctively knowing who it was that had screwed them and that had gotten them laid off or – uh, you know, put them on uh, the government dole. And they knew that Donald Trump was the only one on that stage who was not one of those people. And that's just an extremely powerful, like implicit appeal for a political candidate to have. Sort of an interesting glimpse into this problem that you're talking about. Uh, it makes me, f- it, it reminds me of this brief moment. I'm not sure how many of your listeners would remember during the 2012 election when Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were having they and their uh, campaign teams were having this 
back and forth sniping and debate over who was the actual outsourcer. Team Obama would obviously go after Romney and Team Romney for outsourcing uh, jobs in his career in private business. And Team Mitt would fire back, actually, no, Obama is actually the real outsourcer in chief. Look at all these jobs that are going overseas. But the dirty little secret was that neither Obama nor Romney were actually against outsourcing. And I I remember that happening in real time. And uh, to use a term that we have been using on this podcast a little bit over the past few minutes, there was a bit of kayfabe to it. There was play fighting to it because they were both messaging something that they both knew sounded good. Right. Outsourcing. The idea, it's like a, it's a positioning mechanism. It's exactly. kind of like, and I think that that's such an important element of how to think about politics or and, political speech is, do you actually want to do this thing? Or are you saying like, let's, let's have a study of reparations because that positions you in the right place with the right people. Right. And it got me thinking at the time, it's like, okay, someone at some point on the left or the right in a really big uh, national platform kind of way is going to come along and exploit that unspoken agreement between the two mainstream right. parties uh, of the Republicans and the Democrats. And I knew it was going to happen soon. I just had no idea it was going to be Donald Trump, like game show host, to come along and make the most forceful and successful pitch to voters that this is how both the Republicans, Republicans want me and Democrats are screwing you on jobs and shipping jobs overseas. Yeah. I mean, arguably, the first one was Bernie Sanders, right? Uh, Right. Yeah. Anyway. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. One of my thoughts about this book is that hypothetically, 
There is a version of this book that could be written about a lot of first-term presidents. Do you remember when we decided to re-examine Vince Foster briefly? Because during the— Hell uh, yeah. Yeah, that got weird. <laughs> that was... But, you know, you go back to New York Times and Washington Post reporting from late 1992, early 1993, and the early Clinton administration is just a nonsense barge of everyone screaming at each other. Pizza over... boxes everywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's Travelgate, and it's people, you know— And Nannygate. Nannygate Nanny Nanny there, there were a lot two. of gates. Yeah, yeah, and there were just a, a host of, like— we just nominated this person for this high-level position. It turns out they're, like, paying an undocumented nanny under the table. Which sounds so quaint. I know. It, it's, it's weird how quaint a lot of this sounds. Also, the idea of people being fired for saying offensive things. Like, do you remember when <laughs> things like that happened? Or when people got canned for plagiarism. Oh, yeah. Which actually happened at the dawn of the Trump era. It happened yes. to Monica Crowley, who was yes. supposed to be on the National Security Council for policy. She was like a, a She plagiarized me, though. actually. I was one of the people she plagiarized. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but yeah. now she is uh, the She's chief back at Treasury, spokesperson yeah. for the Treasury Department. So it was just a matter of time. One of the things that I think is interesting about how this administration is perceived, I think sometimes by people who are more Trump-adjacent or kind of the anti-anti-anti-Trump people, is that the only reason we know all of this, all the details in your book, all of the details about Rob Porter, all of the details about Matt Schlapp and the specifics of the characters mentioned in this book is because people have reported on this administration to the nth degree. And had they done so for the Obama administration or for the Clinton administration or for, I don't know, Jimmy Carter's administration, they could have found a host of these things. And I think it goes to... Something interesting about this era is this idea that actually everyone is kind of terrible and to pretend otherwise is virtue signaling, that this administration is no worse or no more shambolic than others. It's just that the Obama administration got to be put in this beauty you know, this hagiography of light and the media doesn't like Trump. So, of course, it's going to report on how shambolic things are. I mean, the Obama administration famously was uh, – granted, I wasn't covering the White House at the time, but my understanding was it was very – it was a tight ship. They didn't leak very much. They mostly stayed on message. So at least from our perspective in 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 doing White House reporting, like this is one of the reasons we would have sucked at covering the Obama White House is we and many other reporters relied on – the very readily available leaks that were just pouring out of the White House. So, I mean, were they doing the same thing in terms of problematic conduct as previous White Houses? I think we're in a different order of magnitude. But even if you take for granted that that previous White Houses acted similarly, it was just – like it's not the sheer number of reporters that are looking into this stuff or you know, maybe this is a chicken and the egg scenario. But – um, the material just wasn't there because you didn't have the the massive dysfunction that allowed these things to be leaking into public view. Like a lot of this material just would not have been available to us. Um, people just wouldn't have talked to us. And also, um, I'll let Lachlan speak for Lachlan, but for me, I never dreamed until uh, they, they, up until the moment uh, they gave me the job at the Daily Beast of being a White House reporter for any president or administration at my previous job at Mother Jones Magazine uh, at the D.C. Bureau, uh, my gig was covering the intersection of politics and pop culture in this country and sometimes abroad. So that's why the Daily Beast hired me. They hired me to do exactly that for the Daily Beast circa 2014. 
a year passes and then this guy Donald J. Trump comes along who's running for president, which I viewed and I'm sure many other people at the Daily Beast viewed as the logical conclusion, if not extreme, of pop culture and politics fusing in right. American Huffington society. Right. Huffington Post famously put all Trump stories in the entertainment section for right. eight, a year, <laughs> roughly. <laughs> and uh, so at that point, the Daily Beast said, OK, go cover Trump for a while, however long this lasts. Well, Hillary Clinton ends up failing to secure uh, the job title of leader of the free world. And once Donald Trump is inaugurated, uh, it just made sense for me to be shuffled over to start covering Trump world and the administration. But before that, I had zero interest in covering any White House. And uh, But, you know, here we are. As Lachlan pointed out, one of the tiny symptoms in the era of how uh, bizarre and shambolic it truly is, is that the two of us are actually somehow equipped to cover this White House. Cable news holds such a ma- is such a massive influence on this president, but also on the people who most oppose this president. We have a former CIA head who will go on MSNBC or CNN to talk about how bad this president is while being the former head of the CIA, which has done some things to some people. Um, How (laughs) much do you think in some ways that cable news has reshaped how both supporters and opponents think about this president? I've often joked that it would be fascinating to see a day of news that did not mention Trump at all. Because a lot of times Trump is very clearly trying to make himself the news by tweeting something. And then cable news responds because there's an economic incentive to do so. But I've often wondered, like, what if they just didn't? What if we just were like, okay, and back to, like, I don't know, things happening. A (laughs) child being handcuffed in a school because she had a temper tantrum and then picked up by police. Um, I think so. I'm interested to see how you think the cable newsification of this administration and its opposition has changed it. Yeah, the the I think cable news is a symptom of. So the, the problem I think at its root is is opinion in is opinion media, political opinion media, and cable news is obviously the most visible um, example of that, and and that's basically all it is these days. So um, so you know it jumps out at you, but the uh, so I think back to like how media handled the whole Russia Mueller probe and particularly the da- how the Daily Beast handled it. And I think the Daily Beast did a really good job of covering that in the sense of like not getting over our skis um, and not uh, sort of falling for some of the more conspiratorial lines of inquiry. But that's not to say that there weren't like opinion columnists who who were doing just that and sort of indulging in some of the more – outlandish theories about Donald Trump and his relationship with Russia. And I mean, that happened at virtually every major news outlet. You know, you have the Washington Post and the New York Times that are doing like incredible reporting when it comes to their their actual hard news people. And then their op-ed pages are running like some pretty crazy stuff that if you don't really, as most Americans don't, grasp the the delineation between a newspaper's news and opinion sections, I mean, one is polluting the other. So the the degree to which those sort of opinion platforms are now just taken as proxies for the entire news industry has provided a very convenient foible for people who want to discredit for the administration in, when it wants to discredit reporting about misdeeds or internal drama or whatever to, you know, write it off as the work of these loony, uh, whether it's like a liberal activist or a former head of the CIA. 
So I think that's been that's something that like the news industry I think needs to grapple with is the fact that if something is printed in the pages of the New York Times, people are not necessarily making that distinction between your reporting sections and your opinion sections. And if your opinion people are saying crazy outlandish things, that's going to reflect on your reporters and it's going to do so in ways that allows the very targets of your reporting to dismiss or try to discredit the stuff that you're doing. And that's extremely damaging when we're already facing this like crisis of credibility in the news. Another way, I think this goes to your question about how uh, cable news just relentlessly means more now than it did during um, previous presidential eras is that so much ink has been spilled, including by us at The Daily Beast and here in this book, about Fox News and Fox Business's hold on President Trump's mind and how that translates not just in his messaging or his public rhetoric or his uh, personal preferences, but into concrete public policy actions. We get into it uh, quite a bit in the book about how, for instance, um, Lou Dobbs, a Fox Business host who in many ways was an originator of Trumpism, particularly right. the anti-immigration fervor of it, and who Trump adores and just uh, uh, seeks out his private counsel uh, rather regularly. There have been um, high-profile Oval Office meetings where Trump has brought in cabinet-level officials and senior administration officials to talk about the latest on trade policy or immigration policy. And suddenly they will find, uh, sometimes much to their surprise, that Lou Dobbs is patched in, in into the meeting on speakerphone in the Oval Office and Trump will cut off a senior official to ask Lou uh, what he thinks and to give his two cents on on uh, the trade discussion or whatever is going on or, or taxes. And it is not at all an exaggeration to say that Trump would not have granted clemency to the, those accused and convicted war criminals late last year had it not been for the sustained public and also be behind the scenes efforts of uh, Fox and Friends weekend co-host Pete Hegseth, who made it a point for uh, many months to directly and privately lobby, uh, personally lobby the president to uh, get these guys off. So – in terms of what is unique and genuinely different about the Trump era, the, the Fox News and Fox Businessification of the West Wing is definitely one of those factors. And I can't think of, for the life of me, an actual one-to-one -one comparison upon that if you're to compare Trump to his predecessor, Barack Obama, like um, Rachel Maddow was not on the, on the Domestic Policy Council or, or anything like that. So... The degree to which this presidency, his policies and his public statements are a direct direct consequence of having his brain hardwired to what's going on on cable news, particularly Fox and Fox Business, uh, should not be underestimated at all. And it's, it's very evident in his public statements and his tweets, but a big point we were making in the book is that it goes far deeper than that and I think deeper than even your average news consumer might believe or want to believe. I think a lot of people who have read this book focus on the first half, which features a lot of celebrities or celebrity-ish human beings. But the second half is really focused on the swamp that has come to rise and engulf this White House and the degree to which lobbyists have smartly recognized um, that as I, I'll quote, Trump's idiosyncrasies turned even mundane insights into his style of governance into K Street gold. 
Do you think that at any point the idea of drain the swamp, which I think was enough of an amorphous phrase that, again, it could be interpreted to mean anything. I think a lot of people who were Trump adjacent took that to mean getting rid of lobbyists, cleaning up, um, you know, how, quote unquote, business is done in Washington. Do you think that is at all akin to what Trump meant by that? I think what he meant was... You know, it goes back to him defining himself in opposition. So, you know, I am the agent of change that is going to upend this failure of a status quo by both parties. And therefore, anyone who is opposing my agenda is an agent of that status quo and needs to be removed. And I mean, yes, that's what drain the swamp was taken to mean was this sort of generic kind of anti-corruption message that uh, that every politician always promises. Obviously, Trump is not every politician. So you have to think, okay, well, what what would he uniquely mean by that? And what might his supporters um, interpret? And I think that I mean, it's 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 integral to the man himself in the way that, um, you know, he's imbued like every other aspect of of his message and his government with his own personal characteristics. Drain the swamp means drain like the deep states or the um, the Obama holdovers, the people who are standing in Trump's way, essentially. Right. It, I, it's, it's interesting because um, I was writing something about how conservatives think about Bernie Sanders. And I talked to someone who was raising the point that, you know, during 2015, 2016, Trump spent a lot of time railing against Wall Street and being like, I'm the only one who can take on Wall Street. And then earlier this year, he's bragging about how he's made Wall Street so much money. So do you think that moving forward, Trump has changed what the positioning mechanisms will look like for Republicans, that you'll have to say things like, I want to drain the swamp and we're going to have to curtail um, immigration of all kinds um, legal and undocumented. And it's interesting because I feel like the, there's, a you know, the immigration hawks who are still very mad about H-1B visas, which appears to be something that Trump is not very interested in. But do you think that, that p- those positioning mechanisms have changed? That- you know, it's really interesting. We were actually just having a conversation a week or two ago with a person who is very active in the criminal justice reform space. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when we were talking about it, uh, we basically said, you know, it's kind of understood that this is a smokescreen for Donald Trump. He doesn't really care. If anything, he's, you know, an old school, like tough on yeah. crime conservative. Um, and yet he has sort of lent his name to these recent, uh, you know, the First Step Act and, and efforts like that. And what this person said is that, you know, yes, people in that like activist space understand that Trump doesn't really uh, believe a lot of the stuff that he's saying. But what it what it allows is for other Republicans to then say that, yes, they, too, are for criminal justice right. reform. We don't all have to be Tom Cotton. Right. Um, and particularly at the state level where now, you know, now activists can go to Republicans who were never their allies in the states and say, hey, the President Trump supports this. You know, do right. you? And they'll go, oh, God, of course, if President Trump supports it, <laughs> right. I support it. Um, so it's amazing that how, you know, the, like the downstream effects of basically any pronouncement by Donald Trump on any policy, um, you know, the, the Republican Party is so much now the Trump party that even when we all know that Trump doesn't actually believe it, if he says it, everyone is just going to is going to take his lead. Right. The autocratic game show personality cult has the occasional glimmer of like <laughs> pleasant side effect, I guess. Well, it's also... 
I, I think a lot about this, especially with in relation to criminal justice reform, yeah. because I think that um, one of the big challenges of criminal justice reform is that re- Republicans and conservatives have historically, um, through efforts like Right on Crime and others, have focused on you are already in prison. Let's deal with sentencing reform and let's deal with kind of um, I think the Koch brothers have done a ton of work on this on like, let's train people after prison and criminal justice reform advocates are probably more interested in the front end of that, which is and this is when I sound like a raging libertarian, but um, there need to be fewer crimes and the punishments for crimes need to be lessened. And it's been fascinating to see how this administration seems to simultaneously agree with me, but also disagree with me, kind of depending on who it is. And that, depending, you know, like if you're looking at the Department of Justice, right, as exactly. opposed to what is coming out of Trump's mouth. Which I think gets to what my last question is, is how much did you get a sense of something that I've observed, and this is it's shifting every day, but there has long been a separation between Donald Trump and Donald Trump, the entity, and the Trump administration. You saw this on Russia, where Trump would be like, Putin is awesome, and the administration would be like, let's put some more like sanctions on this government. Or you see it even on criminal justice reform, where Trump has Kanye to the White House to talk about the First Step Act, and meanwhile, Jeff Sessions at you know, Department of Justice was like, we should absolutely be arresting more people. And you're seeing that from William Barr, essentially, of like, if communities protest against police, well, maybe those communities will lose their police, which is a shame, you know, shame about all that violence. Wouldn't be terrible if something else happened kind of moment. So how much did you see through your reporting and how much do you see now? Is that separation still in existence or are you starting to see the separation close and the Trump administration and Trump fusing into one entity? That divide is definitely endured in many real substantive ways, chief among them uh, when you're talking about subjects like criminal justice or immigration even, because probably the most prominent prominent and jarring example of it was certain heavily draconian uh, immigration policies that Trump was pumping out via his actual administration's policies. First and foremost in this category, uh, the family separation policy, right. where when he started to see on his TV and elsewhere the dramatic, brutal pushback to it, he would immediately pawn it off on others saying, this is not what I want to happen. It's all Obama's fault and we're actually fighting to stop family separation, whereas all of his top lieutenants who had discussed this with him directly, he knew exactly what was going on, are saying – have had at that point been saying for months, if not more than that, this is absolutely necessary. It's the right thing to do and we need to do it. So, so much of this is rooted in, as we were discussing about earlier, that Trump as a – what he would like to think as a world-class brander or whatever gets in his head, OK, this is a message or a bumper sticker slogan that sounds good, family separation, bad, endless war, bad. And just keeps hammering away at it because he he knows at least instinctively that especially low information voters aren't going to know the difference. If he said it and I support him, it must be true. I'll support him all the more. So he can do things like say I'm ending endless war. Bush's decision to invade Iraq was the most disastrous, murderous thing of my lifetime. And then at the same time S doing things like 
escalating in Afghanistan, yep. all the while saying publicly, I didn't want to do that. I never wanted to do that. But all these other people made me as if he didn't, as commander in chief, have a say in the matter and also bring us to the brink of war with the Islamic Republic of Iran. So um, uh, there is, again, as we, when we started uh, uh, taping this episode, we were talking about the difference between uh, what is messaged and what is actually happening in terms of substantive policy. And, and you can't let Trump off the hook for any of it. And a lot of members of the administration sort of, I mean, it did not take long for people who were in charge, you know, say like high level cabinet uh, p- officials to figure out how the president sort of functions and how to get ahead or the opposite in his administration. Probably my favorite chapter in the book is the one about Scott Pruitt and his top communications aide, John Wilcox. And I love it because it, I mean, I just thought it was such a great insight into how Trump like how he operates and how that reflects itself in the makeup of his administration. And, you know, during that like torrent of Pruitt scandals, when it was like another one coming out every day, basically their strategy to keep him in office was just to get Pruitt on TV talking about like how great Trump was. They were executing Trump's agenda and like the media was out to get him. And it didn't really matter what was actually happening That was extremely – I mean Pruitt was arguably the most scandal plagued of any cabinet secretary or cabinet level official in Trump's administration and that kept him in office for like seven or eight months because they were totally right. They totally grasped how the president operates and what he responds to and what he responds to is not what's actually going on on the ground. It's what he's seeing on TV. I want to close by bringing up – I thought this is so telling. So you talk about uh, the H-2B program that brings in um, temporary laborers to fill positions that, you know, the president has used um, at resorts as maids, servers, dishwashers, bartenders, and landscapers. And he uses a company, and the company, the person on the board is uh, Veronica Birkenstock. She's the CEO of Practical Employee Solutions. And Practical Employee Solutions um, needed assistance from K Street, the lobbying street. And so it goes to Cove Strategies. And Cove Strategies, their principal is Matt Schlapp and his wife, Mercedes Schlapp. If you would like to detail who these two people are. Yeah. Um, yeah so um, they are – I mean they're basically like a the Trump-era power couple. So Matt Schlapp is a longtime lobbyist uh, and Republican uh, official. He's worked on multiple presidential campaigns and he now runs Cove Strategies. Uh, he also runs the American Conservative Union, which of course hosts CPAC, Conservative Political Action Conference. And uh, his wife, Mercedes, is uh, – well, until recently was a senior White House official. She's now on the uh, Trump president re- re-election campaign. And um, they – I mean – I think I have them figured out, but uh, <laughs> but every time I write something about them, they just like freak out. Um, and basically, I mean, you go back and I went back and like looked through lobbying records for Cove Strategies, Matt's firm, and um, he had never actually reported personally lobbying the White House until his wife joined the White House. So you have like a guy with these paying clients, including seasonal the Seasonal Employment Alliance, this H2B trade association. And then, you know, you have his wife who's a uh, a senior White House official and they'll basically insist up and down that those are totally unrelated jobs. And, you know, of course, Mercedes would never use her position to to benefit her husband's lobbying business. But it's just like a very swampy relationship. And as a matter of fact, set off a lot of red flags in the White House and 
you know, officials I've talked to there, you know, senior folks were basically like, I don't know how they're they're allowed to like get away with this. And it's so interesting that it's all about the issue of H-2B visas, which is bringing in immigrants to for a temporary stay in the United States to work specific jobs that, to quote many people, jobs Americans won't do. And it's so interesting because I think that that really shows in some ways that even immigration, which uh, my colleague Matt Iglesias has made the point that like that was the issue. You know, you could talk about political correctness or endless wars or something, but immigration was the, was the issue. But immigration was also a positioning mechanism that, yes, Stephen Miller cares a lot about immigration, right. a whole lot about immigration. But Donald Trump, in his career, has knows it's an effective positioning mechanism, but does not actually care about it. Yeah, and that's he imports why he, like hundreds yes, of these H-2B and, workers you know, every year. Yeah. And this is something that I'm sure Mark Krikorian and Michelle Malkin are very mad about as we speak. <laughs> but it, it's interesting. So much of this is about positioning mechanisms. In Match Lap's defense on this, though, I will say that ACU, American Conservative Union, is actually reviled by a lot of the anti-immigration. Oh, yes. They're having a uh, they're having their own uh, CPAC, the America First CPAC that um, with such um, stalwarts of conservatism as Nick Fuentes. Michelle Malkin, man, she has really. Yeah. When when uh, Young Americans for Freedom uh, pushed her out, that was um, that was a fascinating uh, that that whole thing is fascinating. But that's for another (laughs) podcast. And um, what you guys were getting at earlier, I think, is actually the over arching uh, thesis, if there is one, uh, of our book, that as much as uh, the president and his lieutenants as a positioning mechanism have railed against the swamp since uh, uh, 2015 and 2016 and at least said, even if it's just a complete outright lie, that we're going to be fighting this form of legal corruption that you're so sick of hearing about uh, in Washington, for Trump, All he's done is lied about draining it. He's kept the swamp. All the liberals and conservatives who are making a big old buck off the American people and American industry and in lobbying in Washington, D.C., they still exist and they're still doing great. But at the same time, he has filled the swamp with his own Trumpian swamp creatures who themselves are making a killing off of the era and this presidency. And the third layer uh, or the second layer that he's put on top of all that is this in-your-face, overt, almost reality TV-style Trumpian corruption that manifested itself most viscerally in the uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden stuff and the Ukraine affair that led directly to Trump's impeachment. So there is no swamp that has been drained. It's only been filled, refilled, and then filled once more by this president. And it's one of the most pervasive lies that he has told his supporters since the very beginning. But... Who's going to abandon him for that? Nobody who's currently all in for Maka. And on that note, uh, Swin, Lachlan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 